Hi, welcome to Canna Confidential. I'm your host, Jewel Peter, and on this podcast, we discuss the state of the cannabis industry, as well as any insights we feel might be valuable to our listeners. So without further ado, we'll get to the content. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to season two of Kinhana's Cannabis Confidential. Uh, Originally, our brand was called Euphoria, but we are now Kinhana Cannabis. And to learn more about our specific brand, you can visit kinhana.com. So we'll be following the same format as season one, discussing Canadian cannabis news, then moving on to U.S. cannabis news, and finally addressing any global cannabis updates that we feel are important to share with those interested in cannabis updates globally, but also in specifically craft cultivation from a craft grower's perspective. So we're going to start off, as I said, in Canada, and I have Cheryl Wilson, the founder of Kinhana Cannabis, here with me today, and she's going to kick us off with our first article from MJ Biz Daily. The cannabis industry, like most industries in the world right now, have been hit by this pandemic. And until recently, the Canadian government deemed that emergency funding would not be made available to the cannabis industry. The Business Development Bank of Canada, BDC, has not been a supporter of the cannabis industry historically. Recently, however, the BDC has made an about-face on this policy just this week. There are caveats, there are stipulations, but it's a win for the cannabis industry as a whole. That's the foot in the door. If you have more interest in this, check with your bank. They must provide 20% of the loan, and BDC will do 80% of the loan. The uh, criteria is also that BDC will provide the funding interest-free for one year with a 10-year payback term. And I really feel like this is great progress because you've been in the industry for a while and we haven't really seen anything like this before. So, And we know that banking has been a bit of a sticking point in terms of how to process uh, legally paid for cannabis payments. And uh, so this is an awesome opportunity. I have had an extraordinary amount of difficulty finding a bank to fund uh, Kinhana. It it has happened. I do have a banking relationship with um, one of the large nationals, but it was a lot of hoop jumping. And initially, there were a lot of conversations happening where, you know, somebody walked into a bank and, and they were told it would be a $10,000 opening fee with uh, a $7,500 annual renewal fee and uh, the the monthly charges for a bank account, if you were related to the cannabis business, were huge. I have not found that personally. I found that some banks just didn't want to do business with cannabis businesses at all. But the large national that I'm working with is, um, the the fees are regular. It's not, there's no uh, exorbitant fees involved at all. It's just a regular banking relationship that I have. And ultimately, I think that's what a lot of people are going to see. It depends on the relationship that you've had with your bank in the past in regards to your personal banking or any other business banking that you've done with them. Uh, But I do think ultimately, you know, five, ten years down the road, the legal cannabis industry is going to be the same as if you were going to open a bar or you wanted to open a winery. It's just uh, 
Because it's new. Yeah, and you just you just have to jump through the hoops they want you to jump through, provide the information. I was fortunate in that I do have another business um, and, and a business relationship with this bank, and so they recognize um, historically what I do, and so they were willing to work with me in the, in the cannabis sector. And as I said, I think we're just going to see more of this uh, on the horizon for others getting into the industry. In addition to MJ Biz Daily... Um, you can get more information on it, bdc.com. The next thing that we're going to address is a CTV article that discusses how Ontario passed an emergency order that was a, an edit to a previous order regarding the COVID-19 situation that is now allowing pot shops to deliver and offer pickup. People looking to get their weed from local pot shops may be in luck a little while longer. The provincial government of Ontario on Tuesday passed an emergency order allowing for legal cannabis stores to offer curbside delivery and pickup service. The order was approved by cabinet and signed into law according to a spokesperson from the Ministry of the Attorney General. While cannabis stores were initially deemed essential businesses by the provincial government, they were excluded from a narrowed list of businesses put out by the province last week. The order to close pot shops went into effect late on Saturday night. While the stores will not be open for customers to enter and come in and have a normal shopping experience, Tuesday's emergency order will allow outlets other than the online Ontario Cannabis store to continue selling to customers during the pandemic. And I, I mean, it can't really go without saying that a lot of people use cannabis medically. I, I, <laughs> there's just really no way around addressing that. And so for people who maybe chose to use recreationally, then this would be similar to their favorite bar being closed during this current global situation. But for those who consider cannabis and have a prescription for cannabis to be medically used, it's not really optional. And yes, in previous episodes, we've discussed how Shoppers is rolling out some cannabis options and, of course, the Ontario Cannabis Store. But people are looking for normalcy during this time. And if your strain of cannabis and the place that you've been buying cannabis is part of what brings you comfort, then that's the experience you're going to want to have. People don't want to pile on any more change to the change that everyone's already experiencing. So I think that's what the Ontario government was really considering when they revised this order and made it possible for people to continue to buy where they have been. Well, cannabis is known to be a stress reducer. And during these times that we're in right now, stress is at an all-time high. If you can't access groceries and toilet paper and just your regular life, you are going to be stressed. And so cutting off supply of something that reduces stress um, is almost criminal. So I'm glad to see that they're allowing at least curbside. And in addition to that, just to add on what Cheryl said, chronic stress is a major source of lowering your immunity. So if you are experiencing chronic stress during this time, then take a look at where you can alleviate some stress in your life so that you don't lower your immunity more than necessary. So now we're going to go on to uh, some notes that Cheryl had from a meeting that she had a few weeks ago. This is very interesting. So as 
a cannabis cultivator and I also have medical sales, I find it very interesting to do some research around these, quote, cannabis clinics, unquote, and how they get paid. So surely you've wondered about this too. Um, it, they're following the same platform of the pain, quote, pain management clinics, unquote, from the late 90s and early into this Y2K. We're, we're beyond a decade now, yeah. so millennia, I guess yeah. you could say. So um, somewhere, somehow, these clinics have to make money to pay the staff, pay the rent, and the general overhead that comes with any business required to keep the doors open. Now, some of the clinics charge patients or, or a client a fee to write this prescription for cannabis, and then the patient or the client is referred to a supplier, a grower, a cultivator. But this is where the magic happens. The suppliers, I've found out, pay what is called a grower's fee, sometimes also called an educational fee to the clinic. So remember decades ago when the recording industry got into all kinds of doo-doo for payola, this is where the record labels paid the disc jockeys or the program directors or the music directors money to spin an artist from that label's roster. It converted from money to trips and gift cards and all kinds of things, but it still happens, and this is what's happening in the cannabis industry. It's the same thing. It's a pay-to-play. And I guess in some respects it's business as usual, where one party has the product and the other party has the audience, and so to get access, one must pay for that network. So I found it very interesting information to discover how these cannabis clinics actually make money. I think that's a really good point, and it's something that people do want to know, and that's likely why a lot of people are hesitant to get themselves into these situations or go to these clinics because it does feel a little bit like, what's going on? Like, how how is this all working out? And, of course, some people are going about it in blissful ignorance and, and just thinking about it as another part of the medical industry. But the best way to circumvent any of this is to do your best to get your cannabis prescription from your actual GP or your nurse practitioner, if at all possible, and then make your own decisions about where you're choosing to get your cannabis, whether that's the Ontario Cannabis Store or whether that's Tweed. I mean, really, it's up to you if you choose to go with a craft grower, uh, someone local. I know a lot of people really prefer to know who's growing it, how it's being grown, what kind of ethics are happening inside the grow. But ultimately, the point of bringing this up is for the same reason that we discuss everything, is to shed light on something that the consumer or the business owner might not be aware of. It's, I know I wanted to know exactly how these cannabis clinics stayed in business. And another thing that um, it brought to light was, as a grower, I want to be able to get my product directly to the end user as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And the more middlemen I can cut out, the better. So if I'm going to pay money to a cannabis clinic to have them divert some of their traffic to me, that fee that I end up paying gets added on to the cost of my cannabis. And so the end user ends up paying that additional money. So it, it makes sense for 
for a user to look for the grower and create a relationship directly with the with the it's like buying your vegetables from a farmer. You want to cut the middleman out if you can. And we're not saying that that's right or wrong. Like we're not making we're not passing any judgment right. on whether these clinics are, you know, we're not going to make any specific judgments about how we may or may not feel regarding these clinics. It's just that it's it's something that wasn't public information and we and felt like it needed to be disclosed so that the users of the clinics, the patients or the clients, and also the suppliers of the product or potential suppliers, just so that there's clarity in the situation for everyone. And uh, quite often the cannabis clinics carry a lot of information about strains and terpenes and levels of THC and how that will affect you and exactly what is your ailment that you are coming to see um, the doctor about and what what will actually work best for you. And it's sort of an independent look at what your um, needs are. And yes, the the clinics do bring a lot of valuable yeah, information and do. education regarding cannabis. It's just really important for everyone involved to be informed. So moving on, we are going to talk about an article from BNN Bloomberg about how Organogram is going to temporarily lay off 400 employees due to COVID-19. Organogram Holdings is laying off this staff uh, because it's looking to mitigate the impact caused by the pandemic. In a release late on Monday, Organogram said it would temporarily reduce its workforce by 45%. So that's almost half, representing about 400 of its employees to help contain the potential spread of COVID-19. Organogram said it offered voluntary layoffs to certain staff, which accounted for the majority of the reduction, but also cut staff in administrative and support roles that it deemed non-essential. The company added that it has enough staff to handle existing inventory and packaging capacity to meet current demand for its product. So I think in this case, Organogram isn't laying people off unnecessarily, although those people do have a need for those jobs, and obviously they have families relying on them, but they are trying to do the responsible thing in one sense, and that's to try and limit the amount of people in a certain area. I'm assuming that these 400 people probably work in various areas of Organogram's facility, and by cutting them, they are hopefully allowing people to maintain uh, the required space of two meters uh, at all times. So I think that's where it's coming from. Obviously, it probably has a little bit to do with the financial impact that uh, the cannabis industry is experiencing. But because this is a business, it will be treated as such and decisions have to be made uh, to during times like these so that the business can even survive. And and sometimes as a business owner, you have to make some pretty tough calls that uh, I'm sure they would prefer to keep all their staff intact. But, you know, with these unprecedented times, you have to make some tough calls. Yes, absolutely. And so that brings up an interesting point from the Financial Post about the regulatory environment and the disappointing sales that have sort of surrounded the commercial cannabis industry in Canada. And when I say commercial, I mean corporate cannabis. 
the industry is now facing um, a stock market collapse, they're calling it, and shrinking financing options, where cannabis companies completed two capital raises worth just $5.6 million, and the lack of financing is starting to take its toll on the weaker companies of the industry. And when I say weaker, again, I'm referring to corporate cannabis, because most craft cannabis grows, they have one owner who's typically the CEO and the founder, and they have a few employees. So we're talking about corporate cannabis in regards to this article. Last week, CanTrust Holdings, Inc. and James E. Wagner Cultivation Corp. both filed for bankruptcy protection in Canada. For CanTrust, it was the end of a nine-month-long saga that began when regulators discovered it grew unlicensed cannabis in areas that it had not disclosed and ultimately suspended its license and it has not been able to recover from that incident. And like, let's just be honest, cannabis is a craft product. It's something that needs a certain amount of attention and a certain amount of care. And even in Cheryl's cultivation, you know, you start to notice that you need a certain amount of people to make sure that every plant is getting the attention that it needs. And I think that's probably why a lot of the corporate cannabis companies are facing these issues is because they're realizing that to scale cannabis, you can't do it and and scrimp on things like employees or people who know how to grow the plant. And that's really what we're going to see is this is the rise of craft because that's the best way to cultivate quality cannabis. I agree completely. It, there's um, having eyes on every plant every day is something. Well, I really enjoy it, and and I know the people that work for me really enjoy being in the with the girl with the ladies, the plants. Um, it it's something that's it just it just feels good. It just feels right to be in there with, it. and it's not. Yes, it's sterile. We wear masks. We wear hairnets. We wear gloves. We wear long sleeves and turtlenecks. And it is a sterile environment in that respect, but it's not a sterile environment in, um, you know, that everything is automated and, and um, the plants grow in a, a, a sterile hospital room kind of environment. So it's, it's a whole different way of doing things. And just to clarify for anyone who was confused, Cheryl refers to her plants as the girls uh, or, the or, or the ladies, <laughs> in case you were wondering. So our final article in regards to Canadian cannabis news comes from MJ Biz Daily, and that's in regards to Health Canada revoking Alberta Green Biotech's cannabis license. Uh, because inspectors observed non-compliance at the site, as well as three provincial court orders obtained by the landowner related to the removal or destruction of cannabis at the site and tenancy of the site. Health Canada revoked the company's license March 19th after an inspection that took place in February. Alberta Green Biotech has been authorized to produce dried and fresh cannabis, oil, plants, and seeds, but it was authorized to sell its products only to other cannabis license holders. And we're bringing this article up just to showcase for people that this isn't, you know, it is the wild west of cannabis in some senses, but in other senses, you do have to maintain the standards that are one outlined by Health Canada, but you also have to follow your own SOPs. And that would relate to the removal or destruction of cannabis at the site. So just a note that 
even though this industry is very new, there are still requirements that are meant to be maintained for the health and safety of the public and for the best interest of the industry at large in terms of providing the best quality product and keeping everything uh, above board for everybody involved. That's when you write your SOPs and you submit them to Health Canada, they want to make sure that you have absolutely followed your SOPs and they want to make sure that um, that there's a certain part of um, SOPs that you uh, you can be in compliance or you can be out of compliance inside your SOPs. So you can be following your SOPs and not be in compliance with what Health Canada is actually requiring you to do. It's a fine line. It, it's a fine line and you have to uh, make sure that you're meeting the criteria that Health Canada is looking for. And they do give you a little bit of a warning but um, if you don't curtail activities that un displease them, then they will come down hard on you. Yes, they will come down on you to ensure that the public is, is safe and that you are producing products in a manner that is compliant. And you get warnings, but if you don't adhere to what they're asking you to do, then there are penalties. Repercussions, yeah. yes, absolutely. So now into the U.S., uh, According to the Associated Press, on April 7th, Jeanette Bott, the CEO of the Utah Food Bank, because of the whole virus situation that we're experiencing worldwide, food banks are working beyond capacity, and food is being passed out as fast as they are receiving the donations. The food uh, that we're talking about in this article was received from the Utah Food Bank by the Roy Baptist Church in, I think it's in Salt Lake City, which in turn distributed the donated food in the local area. As it turns out, two young children were hospitalized after eating what they thought was nerds rope candy. It turns out that it was a counterfeit product that had been infused with cannabis. Jeanette Bott apologized and advised the food bank that, that they were changing their protocols to ensure that this didn't happen again, and the children were fine. And I think that that's exactly why you want to curtail the black market. And if you, know, if you know someone who's buying from the black market or if you yourself have done that, then you probably have someone that you trust that you have been buying from before legalization. But this is exactly why the black market can be dangerous because children, and there are specific cases where children can use cannabis for medical uses, but by and large, children don't need to be taking cannabis, especially if nobody knows that it's happening, the parents included. So this is just an example of why a legalized market is a more successful model because it protects those who are vulnerable like children. Yeah, for sure. So now we're going to go to an article from Benzinga and uh, we're going to discuss how the DEA has descheduled Epidiolex, which is GW Pharma's CBD epilepsy treatment, and it's no longer a controlled substance. 
GW Pharmaceuticals confirmed Monday it had obtained a notice from the Drug Enforcement Administration certifying that its Epidiolex oral solution has been descheduled and is no longer a controlled substance. This notification from the DEA fully establishes that Epidiolex, the only CBD medicine approved by FDA, is no longer a controlled substance under the Federal Controlled Substances Act, GW Pharma CEO Justin Grover said in a statement. Excuse me, Justin Gover. Gover thanked the DEA for confirming the non-controlled status of the medicine and was quoted as saying, importantly, the descheduling of Epidiolex has the potential to further ease patient access to this important therapy for patients living with Lennox-Gastaut syndrome and Dravet syndrome, two of the most debilitating forms of epilepsy, he said. And this is, we have seen multiple cases where originally cannabis, but now we're seeing more and more cases of CBD high cannabis uh, where they are positively impacting those who suffer from epilepsy and sometimes cutting those seizures where someone might suffer with 300 or more seizures a week, cutting that number down to where they can actually have a normal quality of life and potentially function in a way that they weren't able to previously. So this has been a long time coming, honestly. You know, lots of people use CBD for epilepsy, but now the fact that it's no longer considered a controlled substance is just a win for the entire cannabis industry, especially being that this is in regards to the U.S. According to an article from the Los Angeles Times on April 1st, 2020, $30 million worth of cannabis, cocaine, and other drugs were seized in a drug smuggling tunnel that runs, or should I say ran, between the U.S. and Mexico. The San Diego Tunnel Task Force, I find it fascinating that San Diego has an agency called the Tunnel Task Force. They uncovered a 2,000 foot long running tunnel that runs from a warehouse in Tijuana to a warehouse in San Diego. 2,000 feet is almost a half a mile, or for my fellow Canadians, that's almost a kilometer long. The tunnel included ventilation, lighting, and a rail system. And I guess if you've got 30 million in product that has to get shipped, then spending a couple of million on a tunnel is nothing. But just imagine what passed through that tunnel surreptitiously before it was discovered. And again, this just makes the case for why a black market is something that is worth uh, trying to eradicate. Now, of course, we can be realistic and say that completely squishing the black market is a very unlikely prospect. But in order to keep people safe, it's in the best interest of pretty much everybody involved to start to move towards a legal market. And the U.S. would do well to take note of, of all these little instances in various places. Now, cannabis is legal in California, but that doesn't mean that the black market there isn't still thriving because some of the laws are so restrictive and preventing cannabis operations from opening where they do have people who have a need that should be serviced. So we're just going to see more and more examples of this, though, until the U.S. starts to legalize. And then we're going to see some very interesting things as legalization unfolds in the U.S. So now we're going to go to another article from Benzinga about uh, scientific research on cannabis and on the effects of COVID-19 specifically. In an unusual turn, 
NIDA will pay researchers up to $100,000 per year to find out if smoking weed impacts COVID-19 symptoms. Earlier this week, Canadian doctors announced their interest in researching whether properties found in the cannabis plant, including cannabinoids and terpenes, could cure COVID-19 symptoms. Now the American government also wants scientists to study the relationship between marijuana and coronavirus, though not in the same way. The National Institute on Drug Abuse, that's NIDA, issued a notice of special interest last month that they would provide funding for research into how individuals with substance abuse disorders are affected by COVID-19. The letter specifically called for research into individuals who smoke tobacco, marijuana, and or vapes, and whether those behaviors pose a serious threat against the coronavirus. Well, it's hard to do anything without hearing COVID-19 or some iteration of that virus that is currently affecting life for people around the globe. But it's very interesting to think that cannabis could uh, be further legalized because of COVID-19. It's just something that wrapping my head around that, I mean, it's a wild card. It's something that no one could have anticipated something like this occurring globally, let alone how it was going to impact everything. But to think that it might have a positive impact on the legalization of cannabis because there's a correlation between eradicating something like coronavirus by using cannabis in some way is just a crazy thing to think about. I did the same uh, research on on uh, some information from the candidchronicle.com regarding cannabis and, and this virus that's going around. And they've isolated some studies. They're incomplete, but the studies are showing that it's some of the terpenes that are involved in cannabis that are having the most effect on some of the symptoms of coronavirus. I think the whole thing is just really, I mean, obviously this entire experience that's happening globally was unexpected, but to think that it somehow could play a positive role in the legalization of cannabis is really just, like I said, it's an absolute wild card, but wouldn't it be amazing if somehow cannabis could assist people that are experiencing symptoms or are sick with this illness right now? Certainly. So now we're going to move into our global news for today's conversation. And our first article comes from The Guardian. And in a recent story from The Guardian about Canada's ailing cannabis sector, which was written by London-based reporter Michael Power, it's explaining how the UK is sort of looking at how legalization is playing out in Canada. In 2018, the United Kingdom legalized medical cannabis and Michael Power predicts that the UK will follow Canada's lead and legalize adult-use cannabis within the next five years. Like many other nations that are considering evolving their cannabis laws, the UK is looking to Canada to learn what's worked and where the sector has floundered. He points to Canada's much maligned retail patchwork as one of the issues that's plagued the sector's growth, highlighting Ontario's lack of stores in particular, given that Ontario has the largest population of any province in Canada. The province has worked to re remedy that in 2020 with new stores opening on an almost weekly basis, but because of COVID-19, it has temporarily halted those expansion efforts. 
For now, there are fewer than 100 cannabis stores in the nation's most populous province. Until that changes, other issues the industry is facing, like the mountain of oversupply, which Michael Power notes is weighing in at 400 tons, will continue to grow. Power also discusses the quality of Canada's legal products, which have been criticized for being overly expensive, less varied, and less potent than what is readily available on the illicit market. So just to sort of summarize that whole thing, he's addressing the issues that we're all aware of in Canada, which is the bottlenecking of a lack of retail outlet, and also the lack of quality cannabis. And both of those points can be completely addressed if there was just more education for consumers. There's a serious lack of clear, concise information on cannabis, and there's just, there's not a lot out there that has backing because there are so few studies that have been done to clearly demonstrate for people the effects of cannabis. Now, if you look at big pharma, it's easy to see why they have so many studies because these pharmaceutical companies are funding studies that support their agenda. In cannabis, we don't necessarily have that yet just because the market isn't mature. And that's amazing because it means that people who are aware of what cannabis can do and universities can do the studies without having to be driven by an agenda aside from just figuring out what about this plant can help people. So in regards to the UK and how they're looking to Canada, there is a spotlight on Canada in that sense. And yes, there are things that they could have done better, but you don't know what you don't know. And so in that sense, I think that what needs to be the focus for other countries as they legalize is making education of cannabis a priority. It's a tool. It's something people can use to enhance their quality of life, especially if they're suffering from some sort of chronic illness or pain. And that's really what needs to be the focus globally for cannabis, that yes, it can bring in tax dollars. Yes, it is something that will help eradicate a black drug market. But at the end of the day, what's going to help any growing cannabis industry the most is explaining to consumers that the quote war on drugs doesn't need to include cannabis anymore and why that is and how it can actually positively impact their lives. Well said. And now our next article is in regards to New Zealand and their efforts to have a legally medical cannabis industry of their own. Key guidance material and forms for New Zealand's medical cannabis program have been published and the Medicinal Cannabis Agency says it's ready to accept business applications. The medicinal cannabis scheme has now come into effect, the agency wrote in an email to stakeholders. The commencement of the program is consistent with the government's projection that the COVID-19 pandemic would not seriously impact the key dates. However, the agency warns that New Zealand's lockdown because of the COVID situation might cause delays. Agency employees are currently working from home as part of the government's physical distancing measures. We will be assessing license applications during the lockdown, but our assessments may take a little longer than if we were all in the office, according to the email. Well, this is very exciting because New Zealand has been exploring the idea of a medical cannabis market with uh, some open market aspects in that there would be 
businesses. It wouldn't be strictly government run. And that's a wonderful thing because, again, it's going to allow people to access something that if they really need it, they're going to get it anyway. And if that's the case and the plant doesn't pose a serious harm, then why shouldn't people be able to have access to something that they need that is going to increase their quality of life? Uh, I'm, I look forward to New Zealand legalizing. I look forward to Australia legalizing. And I'm glad that they're looking to Canada to, um, to get some guidance. Uruguay also is uh, federally legal. So both countries can offer some guidance to the countries that are coming online. And in our final article for today from Technical 420, Panaxia is preparing for European sales. They have announced an agreement for temporary use rights in an R&D facility in Malta for the commercial production and marketing of its European cannabis products in Europe. And we did touch on this last season as well, so if you want to hear some history, then definitely go back and check out our episode in this regard from season one. The agreement allows Panaxia to use the Maltese R&D facility and commence its European activity. The Maltese operations are expected to commence within a few months, subject to complete conversion of the facility into a commercial facility meeting the requirements of the EU GMP standard and the receipt regulatory approvals from the Maltese government. By that, to the best of the company's knowledge, it shall become the first medicinal cannabis company in Israel to commercially manufacture and sell cannabis products in EU countries. The Maltese facility to be operated by Panaxia is ready to extract cannabis inflorescence. It has the capacity of producing several hundred thousand products annually, which will join the ensemble of products already manufactured in Israel. Israel was one of the very first places to have research done on cannabis, and so a lot of the very first studies that anyone has access to came from Israel. So the fact that they are now expanding into the commercial market is encouraging, especially given the fact that in a lot of cases, they have research to back up why cannabis works for certain ailments, even if that ailment is something like chronic stress or chronic anxiety or social anxiety. It's just encouraging to see that we are seeing progress, even though there is so much uncertainty going on in the world right now. It's nice to see some progress on something that can provide people a lot of relief, whether that's from cancer treatment or whether it's relaxing after your stressful job. If you choose to use it recreationally, cannabis has a lot of uses and we can agree or disagree on that all day long, but... What we can agree on is that ultimately what we've learned from these weeks experiencing COVID-19 is that chronic stress is something that people are facing right now and that cannabis in a lot of cases can really help alleviate that uh, in regards to COVID-19, but also in regards to life. And something else we're all learning is that quality of life really matters and that when your job is uncertain or a lot of the rest of your life can be uncertain that you really want to be able to come home to a life and, and a situation that you've created for yourself that you love. And for some people, cannabis is a part of that. So thank you for joining us for today's episode. We'll be back next week with another episode and we look forward to hearing any questions that you might have in regards to this episode. Have a great week, have everyone. You met Mary Jane.
Thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions about today's topics or the cannabis industry in general, then please send an email to admin at kinhana.com. That's K-I-N-H-A-N-A.com.